Hello, people. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn. I'm your host, and this is episode number 227. And now we're getting over being sick again in this secret house. Again. We had COVID like two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago. I don't know. I lost track of time. My daughter was in school for like not even a month, and she came home with a fever. And we had avoided COVID through the whole pandemic. And of course, she's there for like not even a month, comes home, fever, all the things. And then she tested positive, then my wife, then myself. And we were down for the count for like 10 days. And uh, I know a lot of people like to get it and they're like, ah, it's not that bad. Just just a cold, you know. It wasn't just a cold for us. <laughs> it was it was pretty rough here in the secret house. But just as we were starting to get back to our normal selves, uh, now my daughter come home, home again from kindergarten with a fever runny nose, all the things. Uh, it's not COVID, thankfully. Uh, just a head cold, chest cold, that kind of thing. But uh, I tell you that because my voice is shot today as I'm recording this, and my brain is in a fog as I'm recording this. So who knows what I'm going to say? Who knows where this is going to go? But thankfully, the episode was recorded <laughs> at a time when I was not sick, and so I sound a little bit more coherent uh, in my conversation with Gabriel Gordon. He's our guest today. Uh, he wrote a book called God Speaks, uh, subtitled A Participatory Theology of Biblical Inspiration. So we talk about the Bible in this episode. We talk about inspiration of the Bible. You know, the God, the inspired word of God, the inerrant word of God. We talk about inerrancy. We talk about inspiration. We talk about a lot of different things. And uh, Gabriel brings some unique perspective to the conversation because I don't know about you, but I grew up in this world where I was told the Bible is inerrant. It's perfect. It says what it says, and this is the way that it happened. Uh, this is the exact words of God to us. Don't question them. Don't rethink them. Don't push up against them. This is God's very words to you, and it's perfect. And for a long time, that was my that was my approach to the Bible. You know, when a question would come up about, well, you know, if, if the Bible says this, but I don't know, it doesn't really sound maybe historically accurate, or it doesn't really sound like, you know, God, a loving God would really command genocide against a whole group of people. Like, that sounds kind of kind of weird. You know, like, there's just things in the Bible that come up, and you're like, I don't know about this. But I was always taught, just got to have faith, right? Doesn't make sense to us, but, you know, God's ways are not our ways. Don't question them. And someday when we get to heaven, you know, God will make it all clear for us, and we'll, we'll see things from a different perspective. And, and that's it. This is God's Word, you know, basic instructions before leaving earth. That was the, the burlap to cashmere song back in the day. You know, this is God's instruction manual to us. It's perfect in every way. You just have to obey it and, and believe it, and, and that's it. And so Gabriel brings a much different and I think helpful perspective to the table to help us rethink this idea of inerrancy, but still hold a deep and I would say even deeper appreciation uh, for the Bible and what it is, and, and what it means for our lives. So I'm looking forward to this. I highly recommend the book. It's put out by Choir, um, God Speaks, a Participatory Theology of Biblical Inspiration. And also, I should say, Gabriel is a really smart guy. And so you're going to notice, I, I try to do this, like this is kind of my thing with the podcast, is I let my guests speak, right? I try not to interrupt them. I have a notebook next to me, so I'll always be writing down my questions. So instead of interrupting with a question, I'll come back to that question later. But I let Gabriel speak in this episode because he's so wise. 
He's got so much head knowledge, but so much wisdom as well. And he brings it together, and I think, in a really helpful way. So get your notebook out. Get ready to hit pause a couple times to kind of let his words simmer and bake in your mind because he's got some really good and really helpful things to say. I'll put all of his links in the show notes. Also in the show notes, Patreon, buy me a coffee. Patreon's on fire lately. I don't mean that like tons of people are signing up. I mean that we're having a lot of fun with Patreon. Uh, Patreon now is all about community. Uh, So instead of me giving you more content, it's about community. Every tier gets the same uh, reward, the same level of community. You get uh, put into a Discord chat group where we chat all week long about life, God, questions, whatever, what we're eating, what we're doing for the holidays, whatever. We also have a book club. We're reading Colby Martin's uh, The Shift right now. And uh, we have Zoom Hangouts. We have a Zoom Hangout like for all Patreon people. We have a Zoom Hangout for the book club to talk about uh, the book. Uh, we're going to try to get Colby on to one of those calls as well to kind of answer our questions. Uh, there's going to be opportunities in the spring uh, for Patreon people to come on the podcast to talk about uh, maybe a, a question they're wrestling with or maybe just talk about their spiritual journey and kind of share that with the the greater masses of the What If Project. So really fun things are happening. So I really want to invite you to take a look at that. Uh, Patreon.com slash What If Project. Tiers start at $3 a month. And like I said, whether you give $3 a month or $300 a month, whatever it is, every tier gets the same reward. And so it's not like you give $3 a month, but you don't get as much community as the $300 person. Everybody gets the same stuff, uh, which is which is a lot of fun. And people are making friends. Uh, there's people who are meeting each other. There's people on the other side of the world, people in uh, Norway. I think we have somebody in Australia. We have people in Canada. We have people in the U.S. We have people in Spain. We have people all over the place who are meeting and connecting uh, through this, this wonderful uh, thing that we have. So I want to invite you to go check it out. Again, patreon.com slash project. Uh, that's the place to go to support the show and jump into the community. So anyway, all the links to that, uh, my book, all the things in the show notes. I'm done talking. Brain fog has hit. My voice is going. This is episode number 227 with Gabriel Gordon. Enjoy. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing through sunshine and rain. Stressing over everything, losing your brain. Fit back up yourself before you go insane. Levitate over times and you got the rain. Times are tough, I'm being honest. We can see the light, just remain modest. Uh, can't forget, just a day reminder. Life's a little short, and take off the blinds. Be a little wiser. Build my own future, I'm the pathfinder. CMG is a team with a franchise. Uh, impacted by the worst decisions. Breaking bad habits on the repetition. What you getting to now? Gave too many chances. Stop In the bad condition, but it's not the ending. Get yourself together, got no time for reminiscing. I just want us all to live life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the show. Today we're sitting down with my friend Gabriel Gordon to talk about his book, God Speaks. And so Gabe, uh, welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. Thanks, I appreciate it and uh, happy to be here. Thank you. So before we jump into your book, uh, since you're a new guest, maybe take a few moments to tell us about yourself. Who are you? What do you do? Some of the highlights of your journey, the, the general overview of Gabriel yeah. Gordon. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, like everyone else, um, I didn't just come into self-existence, but uh, I had people come before me. So my 
dad's side of the family, um, he's a brown Jewish guy. Um, so I'm a Jew from my dad's side of the family. And then my mom's side of the family, um, if she gets out into the sun, she's tomato color. Um, <laughs> he's a, kind of a mix of various Northern European ethnic groups. Um, I'm originally from Washington State. Um, as to where I was born, um, obviously, as I just mentioned, my people are not originally from Washington State. Um, <laughs> grew up, my grandparents were Assembly of God missionaries. And uh, the, we moved, they had lived in Japan and Thailand uh, when my mom and my aunt were growing up. And they all moved back at the end of uh, my mom and aunt's high school career. My mom ended up meeting my dad, um, who, as I said, was a, a Jewish brown guy. I mean, he's still alive, but brown Jewish guy. Uh, and that did not work out. So I grew up without my dad. I uh, didn't meet him until I was 18. Mm. At about the age of three, uh, my mom and I moved to Bangkok back with my grandparents. They were moving back. Um, and because I kind of grew up in that missionary context, uh, remember asking a lot of questions. Noah's Ark was kind of my favorite story as a kid and uh, moved to Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. My family was kind of, in the, they were deeply into the prosperity gospel at one point, some of them still are. So we moved to Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, just outside of Tulsa, which is actually, I come to find out in one of my church history classes a couple of years ago that uh, that's where one of the main epicenters of the prosperity gospel was uh, mm -hmm. Rama Bible Church, which is uh, where my mom went to Bible college. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. so Ended up there at about five or six. Uh, my grandfather left my grandmother for a Thai prostitute, the missionary. And uh, so my grandmother moved to Oklahoma. And when they, when she got here shortly, or when she got to Oklahoma shortly after that, my mother started dating a new man who sexually molested me. My mother physically abused me. And so I was taken away by Child Protective Services and given into the custody of my grandmother. Um, I've learned a lot about the nature of God, I think, simply from God's grace through her. Um, grew up kind of angry and, 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 and bitter at the church. And long story short, um, kind of got about, had some mystical experiences from about the ages from 13 to 19 uh, and kind of got back into the church. Uh, found our when we, we moved back to Bangkok when I was 15. Uh, and got plugged into a Southern Baptist church. Uh, my family had known an Indian family in Bangkok who'd been there. Uh, they'd known the family since the 80s, and they were part of this church. And, and uh, so we got connected with them. I was kind of a fat 15-year-old. I was like five foot five, pretty short. And uh, my, my life was just, I was kind of depressed at this point in my life. And, um, and this church was kind of the center of uh, kind of a, a spark, not just in my faith, but like in a holistic way, my life was turning around. I only completed half the seventh grade and half the eighth grade. Mm -hmm. And I was supposed to be in school when I was in Bangkok during this year. I was supposed to be a sophomore in high school, but uh, my grandfather went back on that promise. So I was just kind of sitting around watching South Park and stuff up till two or three in the morning. And um, the youth pastor was pretty, the, the pastor and his wife and the youth pastor were all, and their kids were all very instrumental in, in kind of uh, my faith. Uh, and while I was there, uh, my youth pastor said, hey, Gabe, I think you need to lose weight and uh, gave me a plan to do it. And mm -hmm. I started walking 30 minutes a day and started losing weight. He gave me history books because he was one of the history teachers at a local international school. Mm -hmm. And uh, which and I started reading scripture. Uh, and at this point, 
um, I'd recently been tested by a friend of one of the pastor's wives um, or wife. He didn't have multiple wives. Um, <laughs> recently had been tested and my reading level was uh, a, a, that of a sixth grader. I was supposed oh. to be a sophomore in high school. So, mm-hmm. and to this day, I still have like a sixth grade, a uh, sixth grade at math level. Um, and so, you know, started reading history, started reading scripture and, uh, started losing weight and getting healthier. And, and, and my faith was growing, you know, some of my best memories are, are listening to, uh, pastor Martin preach his sermons on the gospel of Mark. And, and so that was kind of a turnaround, uh, for me, we moved back to Oklahoma after being about there for a year and, um, got started gathering with a Southern Baptist church that we knew through our connection in Bangkok, um, in Tulsa. And that was also a really great place for my faith to grow. Um, really appreciative of it. Ended up going to Oklahoma Baptist University um, and kind of had this mystical experience um, right before going to college and then kind of had some in my first year of college. It kind of led me back to my Pentecostal charismatic roots for a bit. Um, ended up double majoring in anthropology and cross-cultural ministry, mm. um, specifically international church planting. And um, so thankful for the, the I'm th- really thankful I, for the Southern Baptists. I've learned to be thankful. Um, it's because of them that I was the first person in my uh, family to become college educated. Mm. Um, a lot of my mentors have been Southern Baptists and I still stay in contact with them. Um, so after college ended up, uh, kind of by the end of college, I went through, uh, deconstruction. I have come to prefer the term. Um, I think Brad Jersak actually got it from Richard Rohr, but, uh, reorientation, I, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I don't see it as I wasn't deconstructing my, my faith. My faith was always sort of in Christ. I was deconstructing the theology, the, the fundamentalist Protestant theology I'd been raised in, Yeah, which most of those people out of goodwill had passed that on. And I'm thankful Mm -hmm. for Jesus and how he showed up in the midst of that. So then, um, but by the time I left college um, and everything kind of centered around the Bible for me, I think I talk about that in the intro. Mm -hmm. Um, The Bible was our God in a lot of ways. Um, And Jesus still met us there, but nonetheless, we had that huge idol in our lives. And like the fourth member of the Trinity. (laughs) Yes. Or if you're Baptist, it's the third member. Right. Get rid of the Holy Spirit. That's it. Push him off. We don't understand him. Just keep him yeah. over there. He's scary. Um, <laughs> the wild goose is the Celt used to say. That's right. Um, so we uh, it all centered around the Bible, and then um, by the end of my college experience, uh, I was still a Christian, still identified with uh, the Christian tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize that at the time, but I was becoming more Catholic and more Eastern Orthodox in my mm-hmm. theological orientation, particularly Eastern Orthodox. But uh, which is ironic on the Catholic side of things, cause I grew up hating Catholics and thinking, you know, they were going to burn in hell and they weren't Christians and they, they, they weren't even worthy of the label heretics. They were so far from Christianity. Mm-hmm. They were just a completely different religion. Um, but now I, I, I look and think much more like a Catholic than I do a Protestant. So, you know, the irony is, is, is deeply there. <laughs> um, ended up doing a church planning internship at a Southern Baptist church in Seattle. Uh, it was for six months. It was the loneliest time of my life. Um, I had to hide what I thought about scripture um, and a lot of other things. And I got kicked out about six months into it. Hmm. The pastor said I was unteachable and I pushed back too much. Um, so I moved back to Oklahoma, uh, back to campus. Actually, my wife and I were engaged at the time and we got married 
and I moved, we moved into marriage housing on uh, campus. So got kicked out of Southern Baptist Church, but ended right back up into the arms of the Southern Baptist. And uh, I think in some ways, um, without sounding too Calvinistic, I think the hands of God were in that. Um, and so ended up at an Episcopal church. I didn't want to go back to anything Protestant, um, but I wasn't quite ready for Catholic or Orthodox at that point. And, and they kind of presented themselves as the via media, the in-between between Protestants and Catholics and, mm. and kind of got presented as a big tent. So I ended up in the Episcopal church where I still am until they kicked me out. And um, that's where I've been for the last few years. Um, I did my master's of theological studies in uh, and specialized in biblical studies at Portland Seminary, mm -hmm. um, where I studied under uh, Randy Woodley and Eka Tupamahu and Dan Bruner and a bunch of other fantastic people mm -hmm. um, who were evangelicals and, and in a much broader sense. They weren't fundamentalists, um, but that also gave me a deep appreciation, even though I don't identify as Protestant, a, a deep appreciation of the evangelical tradition. Um, and it was great for the jadedness I had coming out of all that, um, mm -hmm. as a lot of us do. And so um finish that uh i'm currently the cop when i moved to colorado three days and the the priest here um who had kind of been in contact with said hey do you want to start a college ministry for the church and so i like a sucker said yes and uh, so i i'm a college missioner uh, my job is to start a college ministry so i've been doing that for about almost a year and a half it'll be a year and a half in a few months and um, I write books and I run a small organization called the Misfits Theology Club, uh, which kind of started off as kind of a deconstructionist group It evolved into a, um, a, an ecumenical organization, essentially. So we do an annual conference. We'll be doing one up in April here in Grand Junction, Colorado. Um, I do have a podcast and a blog for that, that I haven't done a lot for recently. Mm. Um, and, uh, have, I'm married, like I said to uh awesome woman hannah and then we have our dog carl bart uh, we just call him bart please name <laughs> do you ever call him carl <laughs> you know sometimes you know if he's in trouble we'll call him carl, carl right <laughs> carl. here bart here bart <laughs> that's funny and um uh really am passionate about uh, uh i did my master thesis on a kind of a comparison of uh the fundamentalist understanding of scripture compared to the early church's understanding of scripture and then kind of zeroed, zeroed in and focused on origins understanding of scripture. So I'm really passionate about Eastern Christianity, uh, such as, you know, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the Oriental Orthodox traditions like Syriac, Coptic, and Ethiopian, um, mm. and, and how those being rooted outside of Europe give us a different um, perspective, uh, a non-colonized perspective on um on, on the Christian faith and looking at doing my doctoral studies at some point, I'm in the midst of applications and uh, hopefully I'll start that in the fall. So that's a, uh, I also am an ENTP. So I have the same Myers-Briggs as the Joker and Captain Jack Sparrow. Um, you know, some, some people just want to watch the world burn. Now I don't want to watch the world burn. I, I, I want to see, um, I want to see the church healthy and, and faithful to God. Yeah. Um, and, and all the various ways that is. And um, sometimes that's frustrating, but uh, yeah. yeah. So that's a bit about me. That's awesome. I, I hearing your story and now I have a whole other set of questions that I would have for you so that we might have to do like a part two, because I feel like there's so many interesting parts of your story, especially I would love to hear more about the church planting because something that you said in, in your uh, kind of description was that you, that was a lonely time for you as you felt mm -hmm. like you couldn't share a lot of the things that were going on inside. And I remember when you said that, 
it struck a memory for me. I remember the last sermon I preached at a church that we were going to in New Jersey. And I was like part of the preaching team. So I like get to preach once in a while. I remember preparing this sermon while inside I was having this shift that I was feeling. I didn't know where the shift was going, but I knew that the shift was taking me away from where I was at that time. But trying to share, try to be faithful to what I was preaching to the people who are going to be in front of me while dealing with this stuff inside, but not be too open about it because I knew it wasn't going to be very welcome there. It was a very lonely feeling because I just felt like I couldn't share it with anybody. And I remember feeling like I just don't think I can do this for much longer and be true to who I am and what's going on inside. So we need yeah. to talk more about that for yeah. sure. There's, I'll, I'll just say this real quick. There's a great yeah. scene in uh, Harry Potter. I think it's the fifth movie. Um, I'm reading through the books right now, but it's I think it's in the fifth movie where um, Harry is angry and kind of feels really alone and he's in the woods with um uh luna lovelace hmm. and she's feeding those invisible horse things i don't remember what they're called um and she says something you know she says you know i imagine that voldemort wants you to feel lonely hmm. um because if you feel lonely you're not as big of a threat yeah um, and that has yeah. kind of recently kind of stuck yeah. with me because i you know i i don't think the loneliness you know um you know, I started the Misfits Theology Club. So, you know, in a sense, I'm always going to be a misfit. So, um, but I, I think, you know, I don't know. I, Harry yeah. Potter has these theological truths sometimes that um, that really uh, give me, you know, I was just reading um, the preface to my professor, Randy. He has a new book called Indigenous Theology in the Western Worldview. And he talks mm -hmm. about like, that like stories uh, rather than like propositional forms of communication have this power to it that uh, grabs yeah. us and you know so reading harry potter or narnia lord of the rings always kind of has this way of reaching out and grabbing me yeah for sure have you met bo sanders you mentioned randy um i Did haven't he, okay. he went to my seminary and taught i think as an adjunct for a while and i know he's friends with randy so i've i i know people that know him but i've never gotcha met him. yeah he was my he was an adjunct professor for me at my school and he we did like a directed study together and stuff. And he yeah. really encouraged me to start this podcast. A lot of the podcasts, a lot of the existence of this is largely because of him. So, oh. and you know, awesome. he was deeply in, I think Randy was his like main guy when he was at Portland. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. And they do their, they do a podcast together too, on and off. Yeah. They yeah. Do. yeah. yeah on all together or something like that. Something about, yeah. Peace, something about peace. I, I forget. I think yeah. of it later, but anyway, so anyway, you, your book, uh, God speaks, um, elevator pitch this for us, like in a minute or less, uh, what is this book about and, uh, who is your target audience? Yeah. So the book has kind of two main target audiences. Uh, mm -hmm. one of the target audiences is former fundamentalists uh, who are struggling with, um, how they view an inspiration of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but the main one I would say is uh and this is the goal of the book in a lot of ways is to is to make it doesn't do this but the goal <laughs> is to make idolatry of the bible impossible mm. um that is about as succinct as i can get and so i, I do that through um the theology of essential kenosis is kind of mm. a lens i use to go out that from um but it's also kind of a disciplinary enterprise so i draw on um old testament studies and, and new testament studies and um and uh early church stuff. Um, but that's kind of really short elevator. I think you did a great job. I think that's thanks, a perfect thanks. summary and that's it. That's all I have time for. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so the book is dealing with uh, biblical inspiration, right? So the, the subtitle of the book is a participatory theology of biblical inspiration. And we'll get to the participatory part later, but for now, 
Can you unpack for us a little bit just that that phrase biblical inspiration? Because I feel like the word biblical and the word inspiration are words that carry like a lot of baggage yeah, for people yeah. who grew up in the church. So like when we're talking about rethinking biblical inspiration, what exactly are we rethinking? Yeah. Um, so I, I, I preface this with a couple things. One, um, I'm long-winded. Two, uh, I would have wrote this book a year or two later um, because I did my, I finished this book, the manuscript that I turned into uh, Raphael, um, July 28th of 2020. Mm -hmm. And then I started my master thesis August, that following August. And I finished it, um, about the time I was finishing the editing of this book and it was getting ready to be published a few months later. Mm -hmm. Um, and my thesis really helped develop. You see some of these, the seeds of this, um, in the book, mm -hmm. but it really develops in my master thesis from studying origin. Um, <clears throat> and I recently wrote, um, a chapter called uh, what do I do with the Bible or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, it's between 25 and 30 pages. And it's really a succinct, um, all my thoughts and how they've developed on what inspiration is and, mm -hmm. and, and how to look at that. So um, I wish I had that <clears throat> when I wrote the book, but <laughs> so I'll say this. So the way we tend to think about inspiration, right? We look at second mm -hmm. Timothy three sixteen. all scripture is God breathed. Um, we usually forget to talk about the functional aspect of it because um, um, as dualists in the western world we separate function from our doctrine and we don't really see those as as, as together um and so we look at that so first of all we separate those and, and we kind of discard the latter half but then we look at the first part and we assume um that god breathes means it's god's word and if it's god's word and god is perfect and god doesn't tell a lie um then uh then in it then it's an errant. So that's kind of how I, it, we tend to think of it. And that's all predicated on modern German ways, uh, categories and assumptions of looking at the Bible and of, and of looking at the world. So um, the, the, the way we think about inspiration in the West, the way we assume it is that inspiration is located either or both in, in the minds of the authors um, mm -hmm. or in the text itself or both. <clears throat> I was kind of taught both and the fundamentalism I came from. Mm -hmm. Um, but therefore, because inspiration is located in the minds of the authors and in the, the, the text, um, therefore, meaning is located in the minds of the authors and in the text. Um, and that's a very Western way of looking at it. That's a very particularly modern way of looking at it. And it also assumes, see, there are a lot of assumptions there. And it mm -hmm. also assumes a modernist, um, uh, historistic uh, epistemology and understanding of truth. So epistemology being the study of how we know things. So, so the modern way of thinking about truth is it's always locked in the past. Mm. Um, and so we always, and so this is, if I wrote the book today, I wouldn't focus so much on the production of scripture, mm -hmm. um, because that's a, that's a modern, essentially German way of, of, of thinking about it. And maybe we could talk about that later, but mm -hmm. Um, but the, this understanding of history and of truth, as we understand it here in, in the modern Western world, is that it's located in the past. So if I'm going to find truth, I have to go back 2000 years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's kind of, you know, that's the, the, the impetus behind the Jesus seminar, this impetus behind textual credits in the Southern Baptist Convention. We, we truth is located in the past and we have to get back there. Um, and that's kind of one of the assumptions that's underlying our understanding of inspiration. It's located in the past. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but in the early church, they didn't have, well, actually for most of the world, most of world history, even most of European history, we didn't have this 
modernist way of looking at history and, and of truth. And so um, in the church, you had actually before uh, modernity, you had this and, and still in parts of the church, particularly parts rooted outside of Europe, but even to an extent in Catholic circles, you have um, truth is sacramental. So truth is here and now in the present moment. So it's not 2000 years ago that we have to go to access Jesus. We're not any disbarred or um, uh, um, have any, uh, you know, hindrance or handicap on encountering Christ just because, you know, we're not the disciples wandering around with him in Nazareth 2000 years ago, but truth is present in the moment. And that also assumes the, the, the early church assume that truth wasn't a propositional statement, which is another modernist assumption from the Enlightenment, but it assumes that truth is a person, that truth is Christ. Um, and so a lot of this Western way of looking at inspiration, it views it in the past, it views it in the text, and therefore meaning is in the text, and history and truth is all in the past. So we need to go back to the past. We need to look, mm -hmm. how was scripture constructed? How did, how did it, how was it written? Who wrote it? And what historical and cultural context? Uh, and therefore, what does it mean mm -hmm. um, back then? And then we somehow try to contextualize that for our moment in history. But that's a very German, white, European way of looking at scripture and at inspiration. Um, and because of colonialism, which colonialism isn't just taking people's lands, right? Putting them on reservations, but it's also colonizing their minds or ways of thinking and being in the mm. world. And so, and, and it makes whiteness and all the ways of whiteness. So in this case, the ways we think about history and inspiration, all that stuff, it makes it the center, right? It makes it the norm, it makes it the measurement. And so um, if we are actually interested in racial justice, when we talk about this conversation about inspiration, we actually have to decenter the German way of thinking about this. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean we have to completely get rid of it, but we have to decenter it by uplifting some of these other ways. And <clears throat> for me, um, these other ways are, you know, 1700 years old. They're much older than the German ways of thinking about it than the Enlightenment ways. Mm -hmm. so, so if that's inspiration, or so if that's how we think about inspiration, then what is inspiration? What is my argument that inspiration mm -hmm. is? So, so there's a few things. Um, so we have to reclaim the sacramental understanding, uh, this sacramental worldview. There's a great book um, by Hans Bozerma, who's a patristic scholar named uh, Scripture's Real Presence. Mm -hmm. And in it, he talks about you can't understand their understanding of inspiration. You can't understand their way of reading scripture, which is tied together, um, without understanding that they had a sacramental worldview. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, so that's the first thing. So a lot of Protestants, uh, particularly in fundamentalist circles that are divorced from uh, sacrament, the sacramental worldview, they're at a disadvantage for understanding inspiration. And the second thing is uh, Protestants are at a disadvantage for understanding inspiration because they don't have the other books that are considered scripture by Orthodox and Catholic and mm -hmm. Oriental Orthodox. Um, so there's a book. Um, one of the books that's considered scripture by all those aforementioned traditions is the Book of Wisdom. Mm -hmm. And in the Book of Wisdom, it says um, that the breath of God is wisdom mm -hmm. and wisdom in the early churches is identified with Christ. Mm -hmm. So you have to think second Timothy, the author would have been a, most likely would have been aware of this text of this wisdom of Solomon text. Um, and so when, when the author of second Timothy says um, all scripture is God breathe, what, what are they talking about when they think they, they're assuming, I think that this, this text where that says that wisdom is the breath of God and whose wisdom, wisdom is Christ. So I think this wisdom of Solomon text is in the mind of the author of second Timothy. I also think Genesis, and I, this is my long way of going about, I'll come back around and succinct mm -hmm. it, but um, it also has in mind the Genesis creation story of Adam. Mm -hmm. So there's two parts of the creation of Adam. And I actually talk about this in the book, but 
um, the, the first part is that God forms Adam from the dust of the ground, from the dirt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the second part is he breathes into Adam. And only then does Adam become a living being. So first of all, um, if we, we if we have in mind this, this wisdom of Solomon text, then, then Christ is the breath of God. Mm-hmm. And if Christ is the breath of God, Adam only becomes a living being when Christ is breathed into him. Mm. Um, so second Timothy, looking at this text, isn't saying all scripture is God formed. It doesn't say that the, mm. the, the author says that all scripture is God breathed. Mm. Um, and again, if, if it was a modernist person writing, uh, second Timothy and they had Genesis in mind, they would have focused on the form part, right? Cause mm. we're interested in the production, the origins, how, mm. how to get here, how to come into existence. Um, but they're, they have a sacramental view, this here and now presence kind of way of looking at the world. And so they're interested in the second part, which is that, uh, Christ, uh, that Christ is breathed into Adam and Adam becomes a living being. So this brings us to, um, uh, so you really, when you look at Second Timothy, and this is what I'm getting, you have to look at all these different areas of scripture. Mm-hmm. That it it kind of forms the matrix um, uh, for this thinking. So the other one is um, Matthew 5, 17, where Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, um, but to fulfill them. So the word Greek word behind fulfill is palero, which can mean fulfill, right? In the sense of like completion, like um, Christ, the, the Torah is the, uh, the, the the authority by which Christ has, he's come to fulfill it. He's come to complete it. Um, but the word playro can also mean fill. Like, you know, like I, I squeeze, I fill the jelly donut with its jelly and then I put it in my mouth and I fill my mouth with mm. the jelly donut. Right. So it can mean this sense of fill. And then when I was doing my thesis, I came across uh, origins commentary in Matthew uh, of this verse. And he starts talking about scripture metaphorically as a net, like a fishing net. And he says, before Christ came, the net was yet filled. Hmm. So he understands this word palero as filling or as to be filled. Um, And so if we go back to Jesus then, and remember, this is a sacramental worldview that we're looking at. So this Hmm. makes a lot more sense. So if we go back to Jesus in that verse and we translate it, going on origins uh, way of understanding it, then then it's now um, and, and, and actually just my assumption that we should translate it based on what origin says is in commentary is not a modernist understanding of that. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not going back to what's the original context of the author of Matthew. I'm saying, you know, how did, how was this understood in the tradition of the church, which is a very pre-modern way of understanding. Sure, so, sure. so we go back to Matthew five seventeen, and we say, we translate it that way saying, uh, uh Jesus says, uh, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fill them. Mm-hmm. And was he come to fill them with himself, knowing what we've looked at in Genesis and what we looked at the wisdom of Solomon? Therefore, all scripture is God breathed means that all scripture is filled with Christ mm. and not filled with Christ in the sense that we tend to think about. You know, we go to the Old Testament, and we see Christ in the Old Testament. That's a mo- the way we do it as a modernist. We think, oh, well, <clears throat> you know, th- they're talking about Christ like this is a prophecy, this in its mm-hmm. own historical context, this is talking about Christ as a prophecy. Um, that's not necessarily what it means. It doesn't mean that there aren't prophecies, but the text becomes shaped by this idea that Christ is present in the text. Um, and, and actually, uh, what I was getting at with the sacramental side of things, scripture is a sacrament. Mm-hmm. Um in my tradition and in, in the Orthodox tradition, we talk about and the, the Catholic tradition too, but they do it differently. They talk, we talk about um, the bread and the wine and communion or in the Eucharist is 
is the bre- is the body of Christ. It, Christ is really present in that. Now, Catholics will define that, and they have for about a thousand years, and they'll say um, this is phys- physically becomes a body and blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, Orthodox and, and most Anglicans are willing to say this is a mystery. We don't know how it works, uh, but in some in some real sense, Christ is truly present. And so in, 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 so in that same sense, scripture is a sacrament. Christ is truly present in the text. And so that actually changes if, if, if that actually changes how we, if inspiration is Christ present in the text is the sacramental understanding, that changes how we read scripture, right? It's no mm-hmm. longer a strictly literal reading, um, which is why people like Origen can say that the reason why the heretics error um is because they're reading scripture literally not allegorically mm-hmm. um uh there's a jewish um scholar in the 12th century named mamamodes who says the same thing and you know um maximus the confessor in the 7th century says the same thing he says you know um it, it, you know be aware he actually says i have the quote here he says a person who seeks god with true devotion should not be dominated by the literal text Mm-hmm. Lest he unwittingly receives not God, but things appertaining to God. That is, lest he feel a dangerous affection for the words of scripture instead of the word of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it doesn't mean they discounted the literal reading every time, but the idea in the early church was, is this text worthy of God? So you had different levels, right? You had the literal um, historical narrative of scripture, and they'd ask, is this text in the literal sense, worthy God. And if it's not, they would say, well, and Augustine said this about the Canaanite genocide. Well, this text on the literal surface is not worthy of God. God doesn't commit genocide. Um, therefore, we kind of nix this and we go to this, what's the spiritual meaning of this? How is this an allegory for Christ and, and the church and the vices, the seven deadly sins in us that need to be cleansed? Um, and so, uh, so, so you have, if, if Christ is the one present in the text, then the the literal um, historical narrative, the surface level, the plain reading of scripture is actually a veil. That's mm. the body of Christ. And so when we unveil the body of Christ, when we pull back the flesh, mm-hmm. we see the divinity within, we see the word of God present within. And that's why the early church had this view that all scripture had a spiritual meaning, had mm. an allegorical meaning, um, because Christ is present in the text. It all is tied to their inspiration. So inspiration isn't in the past, inspiration is in the reading of the scriptures and the interpretation of scripture, which is here and now. And the primary reason you read scripture is to have it a divine encounter with the word of God. Mm. That's why we read scripture. And it's done in the community, right? We tend to think about uh, because we're individualists in the West, which is a modern phenomenon. Um, even Europeans were individualists, you know, 600 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but we and, and because we have high literacy rates, which we assume is better than not being literate, which is because, you know, we're Western and that's what white people are. So we assume <laughs> that, you know, literacy it's the, way, the best way to be. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, know. Um, I would argue, you know, maybe actually oral learning is, but <laughs> so because of our high literacy rates, because of Gutenberg's uh, printing press and, and the proliferation, the cheapness of being able to produce Bibles, everyone has a Bible in their back pocket. Everyone has a Bible in their phone. Um, we all were taught and encouraged to read scripture as an individual during a quiet time. But that's not how people have read scripture, um, engaged with it, I should say, for the majority of church history. Actually, um, you know, I, one of my professors said, I think it in the fourth century to produce, and they had more books in their Bible than, you know, uh, than Protestants do, but um, they, 
to produce one Bible, I think was the equivalent today of like $2 million or something mm-hmm. like that. So mm-hmm. most individuals didn't have a Bible. Right. Um, and, and so where did you engage with scripture? You engage with scripture in the synagogue and the church and the church might not even have a complete, all the scriptures. They might have a scroll of Isaiah and a scroll of Matthew. And so um, it was in that context, it was in the context of the church, of the community, um, in which you didn't read scripture, you mm-hmm. had it read to, you heard it, right? It's an oral culture. Um, and so it's done in the context of the church community, it's done in the context of the liturgy, of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the rest of the readings and so forth that come along with the liturgical worship style. And in all of that scripture, that's the context for the engagement in scripture. And that's the context for uh, uh, coming to it and, and, and engaging, having a, uh, um, an encounter with the living Christ. Yeah. Um, so, so that, to me, that's more of what we get about inspiration. If we look to the early church, if we look to Eastern, even today, um, to Eastern ways of, uh, and when I say Eastern, I mean the Eastern Orthodox and the Oriental Orthodox. Um, ways of looking so i hope that answered yeah no for sure now i'm thinking about that verse in second timothy because that's that's a another verse that carries a lot of baggage for people because that's the one that i was always taught you know this is the bible right here it's 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 an errant perfect you know god breathed thing and it says it right here in the bible now that word scripture though and you're you're much more uh versed in this than i am but from what i understand that word scripture refers to writings correct And Mm -hmm. so if we look at that verse in light of everything you just told us, is it fair to say then that we could also apply like that jelly donut illustration to a larger group of texts than just what we have in our Bible? Because if that word is referring to, to scripture, referring to writings, then is it, is it fair to say that Christ is filling a lot of writings that if we devour them, we can also ingest the Christ. Am I, am I on my Am I asking that question even correctly? I might word it a little bit differently, but yeah, let me answer it this way. So sure. um, Craig Alert has a book called A High View of Scripture. Okay. I don't know if you've read it. It's about New Testament canonization. Um, and he argues that there isn't, uh, we, we make the term canon and scripture synonymous, right? And, and so does uh, John Bear, who's an Eastern Orthodox priest and patristic scholar uh, who I'm a fanboy of. Mm. Um, anything by John Bear is great. But in one of his books, The Ministry of Christ, he kind of he mentions that it wasn't until the 17th century that the word canon gets used to refer to a biblical list of wow. books that are in the Bible okay. and not that before then the can the term canon, which means rule, right, or measurement, mm-hmm. um, it gets used to refer to uh, before that. So for you know 1600 years to refer to um, the rule of faith, the gospel mm-hmm. message. Um, and the rule of faith gets, you know, uh, formulized and there's different, you know, you see it in origin, you see it in Irenaeus, um, and Clement of Alexandria and August, all these different church figures who, uh, you see it in like some of the creeds, um, there, there's this like general list of describing who God is, right? Mm -hmm. God is the creator of heaven and earth, um, uh, known in father, son, and Holy spirit and so forth. And, and that is what the word canon is used for. And that is actually kind of the rule of faith that, you know, in a lot of our statement of faith and uh, fundamentalist Protestantism, we talk about the scripture being the ultimate rule of faith um, mm-hmm. for belief and practice. But in the early church, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was actually um, the, the, the rule of faith, which was the gospel, this description of who God is. And in this description of who God is, it actually not only decided um, how to read scripture, but it decided 
um, what books were considered scripture. So there isn't such thing in the early church as can, and there, and there's actually no ecumenical council that mm-hmm. got together. You know, we think about like Nicaea, and I don't know where this came from, but there's this idea at Nicaea that they were talking about what books were going to be in the Bible and not, and then it was all a bunch of white guys. I think that's in Dan Brown's movie. <laughs> Um, but they I was were just probably, talking to Bart Ehrman about that. He was on the show. We were talking about that it? very okay. thing. He's like, he's like, I have no idea where that came from, but it's not yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. well, they're mostly brown dudes. You know, maybe Leo. No, wait, Leo, that, he was in the fifth century. Anyway, but mostly brown dudes from like Turkey, Syria, Egypt. And mm-hmm. it was like never talked about the biblical. Canon. So there, there's not at least in the first four ecumenical councils, to my knowledge, and none after that, the fifth, sixth or seventh, they never get together and talk about what books are in the Bible. They talk about who God is Hmm. and um, which shows where their orientation was like orthodoxy doesn't just mean we we've reduced what that means. And uh, well, one, we think, we think about it just we're dualists. We separate right belief and right practice, but we also um, think of right belief as like this weird modernist. uh, I, I use rationalism to assent um, to this list of propositions, propositional Hmm. truths. And that's not how like, what belief meant in the early church belief was more like especially in the new testament more like faithfulness loyalty fidelity to a particular person and that particular person is one described um there but but it also means right worship Mm. and that's that's what we've lost in in the west and right worship isn't just something you do singing songs on sunday right worship is something you do in all of your thoughts words and deeds your daily life yeah your daily life yeah Mm -hmm. everything about your life should be worship it should be in an acting of that. So, so that, that's what they were. That's why they talked about who God was because God was the object of their worship mm-hmm. and God was essential. That's why when we make scripture essential or anything else other than doctrines of God, what we actually end up doing is we actually end up making that thing God mm-hmm. and making it our object of worship. And so, um, so going back to scripture and canon, so canon wasn't, there was no such thing as canonization. Um, that's why Ethiopian Orthodox have like 88 books. Mm. Uh, Eastern Orthodox have 80 something. I don't know the exact number. Catholics have 77, I think. And then Protestants have 66 in their Old Testament. Or, or I guess that's the entire book. So all their Old Testaments differ. And then the New Testament, I think we all happen to have agreed, but that wasn't a council. That was like, there was a local council for the 27 books in 397 um, with um in Carthage or it was somewhere in North Africa, maybe not mm. Carthage, but, um, but that wasn't, that was a local council. It wasn't an ecumenical council. So for most of the, the 27 books, it's really like, we just over time through our practice, it was a very pragmatic thing. It just, we happen to all agree on it, but the old Testament, we don't. So there's no such, so canon and scripture are not synonymous terms. Mm-hmm. Um, there were things that I would argue that the early church did believe were scripture, like because of the rule of faith, they would say, well, I mean, there were even struggles about revelation, right? Mm-hmm. They would say, well, does revelation really fit according to the rule of faith? Um, most of them, as we see in the 27, most of them eventually do accept that it aligns with the rule of faith. Um, but, um, but even then, even with the idea that the early church accepted some things as scripture and some things as not, they didn't limit inspiration to just scripture. Mm-hmm. So in Craig Alert's book, uh, there's a great appendix, and I think I have it in my appendix as well, but he talks about every time they, it, not every time, but he looks at a lot of the early church figures, and he looks at when are they using this term inspiration, right? Mm-hmm. And this term inspiration gets used 
um, and I think I talked about this in the first chapter, he gets used for uh, anchor, uh, anchorites and monks and bishops and creeds and councils and, um, and a lot of these things outside of scripture. And so, um, and that's what the incarnation does. The incarnation reshapes everything, right? Everything, um, what, what, the, what the incarnation teaches us is that there is something fundamentally true about the nature of God, and that's that God is incarnational, and that mm-hmm. God actually desires for all of creation to be um, brought into union with God. That mm-hmm. the, the incarnation is, is, in a sense, the beginning of real creation. Creation is not yet finished. Right? We tend to think, you know, creation happened 14 billion years ago with the Big Bang. But but the way a lot of the early church figures, uh, especially like Maximus Confessor talked about it, and even Origen, I think, is that creation is only truly creation when god is all in all as paul mm-hmm. says when when god has fully filled all things when when this what we see in the creation or in the incarnation between the word of god uh the second person the trinity and humanity and creation fully united that's the goal of all humans that's the mm-hmm. goal of all creation the rocks the trees the animals the dirt um, the microorganisms, all of creation. And that, so that, that's kind of the starting point for a lot of these uh, early church figure folks is like that reshapes how we think about the world. We then have a incarnational worldview. And so, and that's what we, the, uh, you, that's another way of talking about inspiration. It's not just a sacramental view of inspiration. It's an incarnational view, Christ filled in the text. And that's what all things are supposed to be filled with Christ. Yeah. So in that sense, yeah. yes, uh, you know, all things, that's the goal of all things. It is to have, in a sense, to be inspired, to be filled with Christ, um, to be filled with God and brought into union. And that's what, you know, that theosis of the early church, that deification, the idea of uh, us being being coming sharers of the divine nature is that as we, you know, uh, morals aren't simply there to say, oh, you know, you know, you did good. Okay, you get a check into heaven or whatever. Morals are, uh, you know, they're God is the ultimate goodness. So when we do good things, we're actually participating in the nature of God. Um, and by participating in the nature of God, we become sharers of the divine nature. Um, and, and so, so that incarnational, that, that view that not only shapes inspiration um, of scripture, it also shapes kind of the end goal of what all humanity and, and creation is heading towards. So. Yeah, that's so good. Um, in thinking about all that, one of the things I'm curious about, and I, we can we can end with this, is you talked about the this German idea of the Bible and just that that's ingrained into us, and yeah. then you talk about this sacramental view, you talk about this Eastern view, all these different things. How does that look in your life? That's one of the things I wanted to ask you is like, what does it look like for Gabe to use the Bible on a regular basis? Because we had a we had a series on the podcast about two years ago called Setting the Bible Free. And it was 10 weeks and we brought on all different people to talk about different aspects of the Bible, whether it's inerrancy or the, how is the Bible put together, all these different things and kind of try to cut off those, those lies that a lot of us have been told about the Bible to let the Bible just be what it is. So one of the things I asked everybody on that, in that series, what I want to ask you is what does it look like for you to take what you know of the Bible, everything you just shared with us and bring it into your life on a regular everyday basis? Yeah. Um, So one of the practices that is uh, often, it's not restricted to just Jesuits in the Catholic tradition, Mm -hmm. but it's one thing that they they emphasize is this idea of Lectio Divinia, right? Mm -hmm. So I'll give an example. So um, 
uh, I was doing Lecto Divinia one time, um, which, which uh, Lecto Divinia for listeners who might not be familiar with that is this way of approaching scripture kind of as a sacramental text. So, mm-hmm. so you read scripture, you know, usually about three times. And the first time you read it and you just kind of just let it s- sit and settle. And the second time you read it again. Um, and the third time, the last time you like see it, it, what stands out to you. It could be a word, a phrase, an image. Um, and then you kind of focus on that. And it's in that moment that, that I would say that scripture is unveiled and that you you encounter the divine word, you encounter Jesus and, and speaking to you personally through the text mm-hmm. um, or in the community. And so um, I had one of these moments um, where the, the text I was reading was uh, in Luke, um, where Jesus says, I think to the rich man, go and give all you have away mm-hmm. to um, the poor and, and come follow me. Um, and I think in that moment, um, I'm still learning to live like that. Obviously, if you see all the books in my room, it's a lot of money. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I very much so vividly um, experienced God as, as, as speaking to me in that moment, as the, the divine word being unveiled. Um, and so I think for me, um, that, I mean, you know, it's not just, I don't do Lectio Divinia a lot. It's something I, I've done in the past. Um, but it, it oftentimes... Um, I feel like it allows God to actually speak to the text, right? Mm-hmm. So when we think the text is the word of God, which I think is a um, ontological mistake, it's it, a mistake of its nature. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think it's the word of God, I think oftentimes I can bar it from speaking to, from God speaking to us through it. Um, and, but when we kind of, when we release that idolatry, um, when we reclaim the the older view that it's not the word of God, but the word of God is present in it, then um, it's actually freed to become a vehicle for the word of God, is you know, yeah. C.S. Lewis's language. Um, and so I think I have moments when um, when I deeply feel like God just spoke through the, through me through the text. So recently, I was um, sitting in the church gathering on Sunday morning, um, and we in, in our tradition and in most traditions we read um, through a lectionary every mm-hmm. three years. We read all the scriptures or a majority of them, and so the reading for that Sunday was I think Jeremiah, the calling of Jeremiah, mm-hmm. and I was I was in a pretty low place um, that week, and I think I'd written a poem where I called God an asshole. And I just, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a Psalms kind of layman's <laughs> Psalms kind of week. And um, I didn't feel when I wrote that poem a few days ago, I didn't feel like God had my back. Mm. And when I read, or when that scripture was read to me mm-hmm. um, and it was in the context of the community and context of the liturgy and the Eucharist, um, God spoke to me through through that reading and it wasn't i think there was another reading where i felt like god spoke to me through it but but especially the jeremiah text and i just through that god was saying you know i've got your back you know in, in the struggles and I'm, I'm there right right with you and so i think um in my in my life practically that's how scripture mm-hmm. um i don't read very much scripture on my own these days mm-hmm. um part of that might be my push against the individualism and, and that uh, i don't actually encourage people to read scripture um individually mm-hmm. um but 
uh, I do read, uh, I'm trying to learn languages. So I, I read the New Testament in Greek. I, I try to do that every day. Um, I don't do it every day. Um, but so, I'll, you know, I'll read little chunks of, you know, John or First Corinthians in Greek. Um, and so that might look a little bit what my daily devotional practice looks like. Mm. Um, but I would say, usually in those moments is more for for studying of my languages so it's not it's it's in the moments of the context of the community that i really and, and it can be in those personal moments right sure, I, sure. i'm not saying it. And, and there are moments where like that like the divinity i was by myself mm-hmm. um but those are the moments where um i felt the word uh, an encounter with the, the divine word of god yeah. um through the text so love it hey gabe we're just about out of time but this has been a lot of fun and i have more questions for you because i want to get into essential kenosis i want to ask you some questions about your story uh so maybe we could do a part two yeah that'd be great awesome and before you go uh where can people find you online if they want to engage with you a little bit in your work that kind of stuff. yeah um i try to stay off social media um because it's (laughs) why why would you do that (laughs) i know you know that's like your you know one of your jobs that's right Uh, (laughs) i find that my ego is stroked Mm-hmm. when I do it and I become a worse person. Um, it's not, it's not helpful for me, um, in, in trying to be formed into a more human person. Definitely. Um, so I am on Facebook. If you look me up there, um, I'm not really engaging much on Facebook these days. I don't mm-hmm. have really an Instagram or a Twitter, um, but you can email me. You can go to the misfitstheology.com. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been blogging, um, but we'll, we'll be talking about the conference coming up. But if you really want to get a hold of me, um, you can email me at uh, St. S-T-S-M-A-T-T-S. Um, wait, actually, is that what it is? <laughs> it's St. Matt's. Um, Sorry, it's S-T-M-A-T-T-S-G-J dot Gabe at gmail.com. So St. Matt's G-J dot Gabe at gmail.com. Um, and uh, I'd be more than happy to engage with you if you need it. Perfect. Well, I'll put all the links in the show notes and uh, we'll do it again soon. Cool. Sounds good. Thanks, Thanks Gabe. I've been busy searching for you, yeah. Trying to figure out if it's true, true. Don't think that I've been played by a fool, yeah This mind don't buy, don't play by the rules I'm gon' make sure that I play my cards right Intuition gave me signs that everything is alright Contemplating on my moves, I'm in a fight Under pressure, feel the walls, I'm moving in, it's getting tight Tight. The shuffle getting real. real. I hope it lives on something good. I'm all in for the kill. kill Sometimes kill, it's getting kind of scary. I'm here for the thrill. Decisions on top of decisions, like I chose a pill. The bottle getting kind of empty. Temptations made us presence in the air. It's kind of tempting. Shortcuts after question, but it got on my attention. Uh oh, and I forgot, but did I mention? Looks like I won the game, made my decision. I listen. I listen. I've been busy searching for you, yeah Trying to figure out if it's true, true Don't think that I've been played by a fool, yeah This mind don't mind, don't play by the rules, no Kept it on the low Gotta let it flow Gotta let it go, yeah On to something new, yeah Trying to play cool Quit with all the tools, yeah Maybe you're my calling like I'm on flight at 2 wait. Manifesting everything I take, it's not too late. Running to my purpose like I'm rushing to the gate. Of course, it's in my planning and it's also with my faith. 
at the end of the day, and we gon' find a way. It's a fact of the price that we pay. Everything shine to the gray. Nothing gon' break to the shade. Nothing gon' break to the hate. Everything all that we claim. Hit the red dot to the aim. No missing, I'm focused. No slipping, I'm growing. No talking, just showing. No stopping, keep going. Yeah, I'm just trying to break codes. Ain't nobody I owe. This the life that I chose. And I'm blessed for it. I've been busy searching for you, yeah. Trying to figure out if it's true, true. Don't think that I've been played by a fool, yeah. Just mind don't buy no play by the rules, no. Captain on the low, gotta let it flow, gotta let it go, yeah. On to something new, trying to play it cool, quit with all the tools. <laughs>